Well, last night, as you and I were sleeping, CZ, the CEO of Binance, took to Twitter and decided to set the record straight on a few things that have been going around. It all stems from Kevin O'Leary, good old Kevin O'Leary, who uh, apparently was bought at the tune of $15 million to be FTX's water carrier. Kevin O'Leary, this is the guy... Shark Tank. Right, which is a TV show where people field fake business ideas to fake investors who then act really smart, right? And this is tricky because he's got a whole brand around Mr. Wonderful. He goes on television shows where, I'm not kidding you, his brand is that he's wearing a suit with shorts, which was my thing as a as like a joke for like one of my podcasts, but this is like his whole thing. He even has two cameras set up so that way you can see. So when he he's talking straight to the camera and then locally he switches his own shot so you can see he's wearing shorts and then back. And I'm sure the camera people love that at the uh, television networks. So he's just a total joke and he's stolen your shorts thing. So I think he owes you a check. I think so. That's how these guys work, right? So he's Mr. Big Investor. He's got a whole brand around being like a super smart investor. And he was on CNBC and they asked him, so where'd the money go? And Kevin says, I asked the same thing to Sam and I had an hour long phone call with him last night. And Sam says all the customer money, well, that went to go buy back stock from Binance. That's what happened. We spent $75 million buying stock back from Binance. So CZ decided to correct the record and made it clear that FTX and Binance, they financially separated back in July of 2021. And so that's not where the 75 million went all of a sudden. And then he goes on to just kind of lay it out. It talks about Miami Stadium and the Super Bowl ads and talks about how they didn't do that stuff. They saved their money for a rainy day. Um, <laughs> he specifically calls out SPF and says that he was unhinged. <laughs> <laughs> and then Sam, because of course he can't help himself because he's unhinged, jumps in. <laughs> Shouldn't he have been sleeping? I mean, I don't know what the time zones are for these guys, but I'm thinking like, is does anybody ever take a minute off because they're tweeting when I'm awake and they're tweeting when I'm asleep? And Sam says, CZ, you won. Why are you doing this? There's no need to lie. And then, of course, it just continues on from there, looking pathetic like a high school fight out there in front of everyone to see. I think that Sam and Kevin have an incentive to spin a narrative that, oh, whoops, we made a mistake, but actually it was big old mean CZ and Binance who took all our money, which is ridiculous because they commingled f customer funds and willingly gave them to a third party. So you still committed fraud and theft. But if this narrative takes hold and they can convince enough people of it, and hopefully U.S. regulators, I think is their goal, then they can say, hey, let's go and get some money from CZ. And CZ and Binance, they're an offshore exchange. Nobody knows where the Binance office is. Nobody knows where their servers are. So they're definitely operating in a gray area and are politically vulnerable to a witch hunt, I would suspect. So it makes sense for CZ to punch back. At the same time, we just have to look at Sam's FTX venture portfolio to know that Sam and everyone who invested in him are idiots. And they're leaning into this idea like they were smart people in the room. And oh my gosh, no one could have seen this problem coming. We need a bailout because they were fools. If you remember the bull market, and I do, how everybody was talking about getting yield on your Bitcoin, levering up on your Bitcoin, because this thing's going to a million. And, you know, I felt some FOMO too. I thought deep down, I was like, I'm not going to do that because I don't want to KYC and get exposed to custody risk. But I felt like, oh man, are they onto something? Everyone's saying this. People are refinancing their homes so that they can buy more Bitcoin at 60K. 
what am I missing? And the truth is that all humans are vulnerable to bull markets. All humans are idiots, basically. And there's a very few number of people who've got ice in their veins and don't get caught up in all of this bull market exuberance. And I would say those are people like Lynn Alden, maybe. Seems like she's a real cool operator and doesn't get too excited about stuff like this. But Kevin O'Leary certainly does. So I think he's a joke. I think Sam's a joke. And I think that this idea that there are smart people in the room who know what's going on, that's just something that people tell themselves to sleep at night. Nobody knows anything. Yeah, I'm looking at the names of people who invested money in here. There's one on line 13, just Dave Inc. I saw that. Who is Dave? I don't know, but he invested $100,000 in an FTX. <laughs> oh, man. You look at all these names on here and you think all these companies now all have a hole in their balance sheet. They all, you know, they, they had some sort of value from this that they had put on their balance sheet. And now all of that's just gone. And people really live in a, in a different reality during a bull market because the ground has changed. The field is different. The money was flowing. Um, people were going for longer and longer investments because when you have a easy money situation, you don't get returns on, on near-term things. You get returns when you invest on something that's going to produce something in 10, 15, 20 years. And that was just the incentives that everyone had been living in for almost a decade since the 2008 financial crisis. And that can, that can start to feel like it's just the way it's always going to be, especially when you look at all of the government debts, all of the things, the entitlements of the government is on the hook to pay. It's pretty easy to come to the conclusion that ultimately the money printer will have to run. And so I could see some of these people just convincing themselves this is the new normal because of the economic situation. The macro picture forces this to be the new normal and things change. Policy changes. The people who sit in dark rooms and decide the price of money change their mind. Ooh, perfect lead into today's episode. This is the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on Friday, December 9th, 2022. I'm your Bitcoin Dad, and I am here as always with me. Hey, it's Chris. Welcome back, everybody. This episode has a slightly different format because basically we read Alex Gladstein's History of the IMF and World Bank article, and it's a short novel or long research paper. It's quite long. And I had to do a lot of research to kind of verify this and put it in context for my own mind. And it sort of took all week. And at the same time, I just don't think that there's a lot of particularly important news floating around. There's a lot of the same stuff. The ECB is losing control and the European Commission is forcing companies to give more info on Bitcoin holders, CBDCs, the movement for more financial controls is heating up, but nothing's fundamentally changed. And so I thought that we would focus this week on Alex Gladstein's article. We can discuss the IMF and the World Bank and how that plays into our broader understanding of how the global euro dollar slash petrodollar system works. And also, we can take a break after that to celebrate the latest addition to Janine's This Month in Bitcoin Privacy, which seems to come out every four months now. But it's a it's a whopper. There's a lot of good stuff in there. And eh, there's a little some more positive stuff, I think, there as well. And then we can round out with some feedback, boosts, and maybe a excerpt from Bitcoin Optech. All right. Uh, I also gave this article a, a read before the show. Staggering piece of work, perhaps a pinnacle of Alex's work. Incredible, so much so that I saved a reformatted version so I can 
print it out and read it offline again and go over it with a highlighter. I don't think it's any like reduction in the amount of content or show we're going to be covering by talking about mostly, mostly this one story because it, it really brings receipts to what's happened for the last 40 years. And it explains why so many of us have essentially been the frog in the pot that's got turned up hotter and hotter and why some in some parts of the world are even more screwed by it. And it's to me an indictment. It is an indisputable indictment of the current financial system and how we essentially have macroeconomic colonialism that controls the rest of the world through money. And this piece by Alex Gladstein and the history of the IMF and the World Bank, it's bleak. It's a tough read. It might screw your mood up for a little while, but it it really just lays it all bare with receipts. Right there with you. It's interesting for me to read this because I've been exploring the work of Helen Thompson, who's a British political economist who's really been exploring the way that access to energy has created the current European political divides, political fracture points. And this IMF World Bank neocolonial model fits really nicely into that analysis. Maybe we should start with the general perception of what the IMF and the World Bank are, and then we can go a little deeper. I think the meme version of the IMF I've always heard is the IMF is the lender of last resort for nations. Exactly. And that comes out of the Bretton Woods system. So in 1945, there was this conference in Bretton Woods, New Hampshire, where the United States, England, representatives from France, basically the allied powers in World War II, met to discuss what the post-World War II international monetary and financial system would look like. And the U.S. was the dominant military power at the time. And so they kind of dictated the rules. And the idea was that they would have sort of a gold-backed system, but gold would not be redeemable except at a government level. And the U.S. dollar would be the international currency for transacting in. But then you could withdraw dollars for gold from the U.S. Treasury or Federal Reserve. There was, I think both entities were sort of doing gold withdrawals. Now, immediately, you'll probably say, hold on a second, Dad, that could never work, because we know that banks create money through borrowing and lending. So even if the U.S. government balanced its budget, never ran deficits, was always very fiscally prudent, there still wouldn't be enough gold in the world because European banks or American banks would be creating money via loans. And then some people with that newly created money would ask for gold back. And obviously the gold, the gold supply would remain fixed, but credit creation would create more dollars. So this system probably would be fundamentally fragile. Does that sound reasonable, Chris? Yeah. In fact, what you've just put words to is kind of what I've never really understood about how it could have ever worked. And I I just thought I was missing a piece here, but it sounds like structurally just not not going to work long term. And I don't think that that was well understood at the time. I think this realization that banks print money in a, you know, in a completely innocuous way, right? This is just the way that loan creation works. I don't think that was really internalized until, frankly, very recently through the work of Richard Werner 
and other more modern economists. But in this dollar-centric Bretton Woods model, there was an understanding that you would have countries who would have balance of payment crises. Essentially, if you think of countries like companies, and the IMF does think of countries like companies, there will be moments when they need to pay more dollars than they have. And they'll they'll basically be short-term illiquid, and short-term illiquidity means bankruptcy long-term, but short-term, you can manage it with emergency lending. And so the IMF would be the provider of emergency lending to countries, probably developing countries mostly, and they would smooth over bumps in this international dollar standard system. And then the World Bank is the sister organization to the IMF. They're actually in the same building in Washington, D.C., And the World Bank would focus on lending to developing countries, both to create political connections to the capitalist West and kind of inoculate these countries against taking foreign aid from the Soviet Union, but also to just help development. At least that was what what it said on the tin. So the general view is that these were two Bretton Woods institutions, World Bank, IMF, and then when the Bretton Woods system fell apart, they persisted. And in the 1980s, the actually the Republican Party in the U.S. government suggested disbanding the IMF because what's it for anymore? And somehow the IMF survived, probably through political lobbying and potentially through black money donations. That's just a baseless allegation, but I wouldn't be surprised. And the IMF continues to be an incredibly powerful organization. And the common person has absolutely no idea what they do. And people who are into Bitcoin and who are more interested in the monetary and financial system have the sense that the IMF is some sort of economic hitman organization. There's a sense that I think is widely held by people in the financial industry that you do not mess with the IMF. The people who go against the IMF end up in body bags or uh, regimes, political uh, groups, governments that go against the IMF end up overthrown, and that the IMF has a close relationship with sort of corporate raiders, corporations, hedge funds, and investors who take a very predatory look at developing countries and gobbling up their resources and their assets, and then using the IMF's political connections to protect those investments. I think they get that economic hitman label too, because essentially their actions create indebtedness from these countries, and they provide these countries with these structured loans, right, that kind of mandate certain economic activities take place in order to receive this. And those economic activities tend to optimize that nation for exports. So that way the rich nations can get cheap goods and they tend to under optimize for wages. (laughs) So wages end up being suppressed. So they get cheap labor. And, you know, like this is one of the things Gladstein's article points out is this is just an indisputable fact. If you review the last 40 years of data, this is what happens something nearly like 80% of the time. And now I think it's time to dig a little bit underneath the surface and talk about the mechanisms that are at play here. And I just want to start by saying organizations like the IMF and the World Bank, they are the subject of a lot of conspiracy theories, you know, ideas about deep states and new world orders and sort of transnational supra governmental organizations that are going to take over the world and make everyone eat bugs and whatever. I just want to emphasize that I think those conspiracy theories are really stupid because I don't know, I feel like conspiracy theories are often like a proxy for how an ignorant person thinks the world works. Because if there was a cabal of evil people in a shadowy room cackling and creating conspiracies, 
that would actually be a very simple world, right? Like instead of the people we think are in control, some other group of people are in control, but the world is generally run by people who are in control, which is a very simple model of how economies and financial systems and, and society works. Instead, I think that the history of the IMF and World Bank show that there are some very scary and bad incentives embedded in our current political and economic global model. And those incentives alone can create people and institutions who think they're doing something that's not too bad or maybe even good, and they can actually be doing great harm and great unfairness to the world. So I just wanted to get that off my chest first before we talk about what is about to sound like a massive conspiracy. Yeah, I suppose it's, I think a lot of it can be explained by incentives that are just structurally present in organizations like this, and especially in groups that manage to get into a position of world influence, right? They have a lot of ways to maintain that. And I think additionally, the West clearly benefit from these organizations, right? So they're incentivized to keep all of this going as well, because it's it's really been a deflationary tool for them for the last 40 years, uh, because they get goods and labor from third world countries for significantly cheap. And that's been great for the West. And that's also helped suppress the West wages. So that's been good too for inflation. I mean, it's there's a lot of things that are good with this system. And so there's just incentives to keep it rolling. And in fact, Dad, I would argue that if it was a smoky room cabal with uh, maybe, you know, um, 20, 30 individuals making all of the plans, I would be delighted, delighted to hear that because that at least is a solvable problem, right? All you need to do is you need to find that room and blow it up. And <laughs> yes, we're, right. we're, things are already improving, right? Yeah. Or inevitably those people will die or something, right? Like that's solvable, right? But this, what we see here, I believe is much more intrinsic in human nature, human behavior, and the incentives that drive us. It's, you know what it's been? It's been a bull market for the last 40 years for all of these elite Western nations. Like after World War II, they had their opportunity to kind of restructure the world in a way that benefited the winners, and they took it. And that's a key term, restructuring. So what is actually happening with the IMF and the World Bank? Let's just describe some mechanisms. So generally speaking, the World Bank is supposed to provide loans to foster development in the developing or third world. Third world is a term that comes from the Cold War. It means non-aligned countries, neither Western capitalists nor Eastern communist. It's just they're in the middle. They're the third group. And one question mark is how come the developing world has never developed? After 50 years of development aid, all of this quote unquote Western support, why aren't they developing? And I think that this plays into some lazy, slightly racist narratives that people in Central South American African countries or, you know, maybe they're lazy. Maybe they're maybe they're just they just lack a certain gumption that northern European countries have. And I think that when you say it out loud, it sounds pretty ridiculous, right? If we think that markets work and we think that individuals can make the best decisions for themselves given the right opportunities then we have to conclude that the problem is that people in these countries don't have the right opportunities. Well, what about the World Bank? They've put all this money into development projects in the developing world. What are these projects actually doing? And the answer is that the World Bank basically finances projects that move resources out of the developing world and into the developed world. They finance mines. They finance railways and highways that drive raw materials out of the interior of developing nations and towards the coasts 
where they can be loaded onto ships and sent to first world markets. So we've talked a lot in the past about rentier states, the concept of natural resources being a curse on a country because natural resource extraction takes a lot of capital investment and generally the ownership of these natural resources is highly centralized and so you have kind of a wealthy elite that control monopolize the extraction of these resources and then everyone else is super poor because this elite does well when everyone's poor so wages are low because resource extraction generally requires a lot of labor well the world bank loves that model because they want to lend money to the elites who control resource deposits and will extract them and make them available to western countries and so the world bank is part of a neo-colonial model that sucks resources out of the developing world and directs them towards the developed world, towards North America and Europe. And you might say, hey, dad, come on, neo-colonial, that sounds a little Marxist. That sounds a little leftist. I mean, no one's forcing them to sell all these resources. And I would reply, actually, they are, in the sense that as a country, extracting all these resources and sending them to the the developed world is not good for the country. But if that resource extraction is controlled by a tiny elite, less than 1% of the country that controls the levers of political and military power, they reap almost infinite benefit from this arrangement. And in the absence of a Western world that cares about human rights in developing countries, this system of unfairness and resource extraction can continue effectively indefinitely, especially since there's been so much incredible development in technologies for controlling humans. Mass surveillance, drone weapon systems, new and terrifying types of crowd control devices, including chemical weapons and laser weapons that make protesters feel like they're on fire so they run away. I mean, the world is really doing a lot of work so that small groups of people can control large groups of people. And we see that in the developing world in resource extracting countries that are generally very undemocratic, generally have ruling elites who get very rich on this model of neo-colonial resource extraction, and then huge, poor populations of people with very low living standards who are actually digging these resources out of the earth with their hands and don't seem to benefit very much through that endeavor. Yeah. And it's a cycle. Um, since the 70s, it's just gotten worse. These these countries, they take the money, they get more in debt, and they get more in debt. Uh, according to Alex in this article, he says it's increased from $46 billion in the 70s to $8.7 trillion now. So uh, 50 years, essentially, of them trying to help develop, supposedly going in there with good intentions, giving them these st- structured loans where they have to make systemic changes to society in order to accept the money. And when what ends up happening, and it happens a lot is they just have to take out another loan and they have to get that money from somewhere, usually by debasing their current, their local currency even more so, so they can then get another loan to cover because they can't pay off the loan they originally got from the IMF. Right. Well, so we've been describing the World Bank. So how does the IMF play into this? And what happens is these World Bank projects often run into trouble servicing the debt to provide all of this resource extraction. And You know, basically, the cost of extracting resources from the third world is being subsidized somehow, because if these loans could be serviced, and by by the way, with all of these World Bank and IMF loans, 
something like 30% at least of the money loaned is just being immediately siphoned off and stolen by the government taking the loan. And this is very consistent with this idea of an elite group controlling undemocratic countries, because these elites, they steal the loan money, and then the broader population has to pay it back. So it's a it's wealth transfer from the poor to the wealthy in the developing world. And this is being done with the approval of the IMF and the World Bank. But what happens is when there's when there's a risk of a developing country being unable to service their debt, the IMF swoops in and they offer emergency financing. And when the IMF offers a loan, they actually do not loan money for specific projects. It's a blank check. You can do whatever you want with this money, which means it's generally mostly embezzled. But it's also always used to make sure that there is not a debt default in that developing country. Because if if developing countries stop paying interest on the massive debts that they've incurred via the IMF, the World Bank, and then private party lenders who also lend to these developing countries with the tacit understanding that the IMF is going to make sure debt repayment continues. If the debt repayment stops, guess what? We have a financial crisis because this is part of the fiat Ponzi financial system where new debt is issued to pay for old debt. And so the IMF is in the business of issuing new debt to pay for previous debt to keep this debt Ponzi rolling. And they wield additional political power Because whenever you take an IMF loan, they require structural adjustment. The IMF loan contracts, they look like a Christmas tree. To unlock every increment of money in the loan, you've got to make changes to your country, to your legal system, to your society. And these changes generally involve reducing consumption in the developing country. Let's just think about that for a second. We've got countries where people are incredibly poor, they're on the cusp of hunger, and you want to reduce consumption? Are you kidding me? I mean, that's monstrous. You're basically saying, we need this loan paid, and so we need you to increase child malnutrition and deaths due to starvation. That's IMF policy right there. And another aspect of these structural adjustments is making changes to the legal system in these countries to protect the rights of foreign corporations that invest there. So the IMF, if you think about the way that these loans work, they do not work well with democratic countries. Because if a democratic politician who's been elected takes an IMF bailout and starts cutting the education budget, making food more expensive, uh, reducing the quality of life of their voters, they get voted out of office. And this is what happened in Greece when Greece took an IMF bailout after the 2008 monetary crisis. So the IMF really likes to party with dictators because, you know, dictators will implement the tough medicine of IMF structural adjustment to keep the debt payments flowing. And if the local population has a problem with it, they're met with bullets. And that is just perfectly fine from the IMF perspective. I was just looking at um, all of the loans they've given uh, El Salvador. And of course, it's all in SDRs as well, which we haven't even touched on, but it goes back decades and it's just one loan after another. And each time they need more money, each time they need more money and more money. And, you know, we were talking a couple of weeks ago when you were in El Salvador, just kind of about the history of that country and how even even what they're at right now is an improvement from where they've been. And I wonder if if this hasn't played a role here, right? Like you got to imagine the hard nosed ruling administration, uh, they come in 
and they get this money from the IMF, it only strengthens their position. It only gives them tighter connections to Western governments who are going to back them up. And it kind of means they don't need the support of the people. And for the IMF, it means they've got somebody who's going to be in office for a while that's going to work with them so the deal doesn't change on them. Like, there's a lot of incentive there, too. Again, it doesn't have to be a big conspiracy as much as it's just, hey, these two things align real well. And one aspect of IMF and World Bank loans is while the developing nation and the poor people who live there have to pay for the loan, the money flows to the first world. Well, how does that work? All of these loans are for basically contract work for from Western companies that then pay low wages to local people in the country that took the loan to do some of the manual labor. Right. These quote unquote development loans are really a form of bailout for first world North American European countries. Another aspect to this system is that we do not have free trade. There are free trade agreements, but Europe and the United States have massive agricultural subsidies that finance our industrial farming sector. And we have trade barriers from accepting commodity food imports from the developing world. And so this means that IMF structural adjustment loans also generally stipulate that the developing country should focus on a certain cash crop agriculture policy, meaning they reduce food security, creating dependence on the developed world for importing food to a developing country, and they pay for that food by farming a cash crop such as tobacco, coffee, mangoes, palm oil, lithium, any of those sort of luxury kind of products from that are imported to developed countries. And then they take that cash and they use that cash to service the debt on their loans and to buy Western agricultural products. This sounds a little complicated, but the outcome is that in the West, we get nice stuff, we live good lives, and in the developing world, quality of life has been reducing for the past 40 years, and food security has been falling as well, meaning more hunger, more malnutrition, more human suffering. And what's what's incredible, and I don't necessarily need to dwell on this, but it's all done, and Gladstein talks about this too, under the guise of good intentions, doing it out of trying to lift these countries up. Um, of course, environmental reasons, which we could touch on in a bit, are also uh, often cited. And so publicly, outwardly facing to all of the Western institutions, the work being done by these groups is considered a good thing. And I think conventional wisdom in those institutions is that the IMF and the World Bank are important tools to help lift up these different economies and um, help bring human rights to the rest of the world. But then when you look at the actual results of the work, it's a complete 180 from what the public image is. And it's striking how often we find this dichotomy. And so they do it under the guise of helping. In reality, they're helping corporations and Western nations. Well, they're helping the first world's Western political elite. Because on the one hand, this neo-colonial financial colonial model moves huge amounts of resources at below, quote unquote, fair market cost from poor countries to rich countries. But they also are importing labor. And I don't mean in the form of workers who come from poor countries to rich countries, though that is also uh, an aspect of this system. But by doing manufacturing labor and 
and sort of manual labor that's then put into goods that are moved to the rich world. This system actually suppresses the price of wages in North America and Europe. And as we know, by holding down wages, this reduces inflationary pressure. It makes the current political consensus more stable because basically money is political representation. And so if the majority of people in your country don't have as high wages, they have less political representation, it's easier to create a kind of entrenched elite, which is what we see, at least in the United States, to my observation. So this system, while it might provide the average North American, American, Canadian, French, German citizen with more access to coconut oil in the supermarket and, you know, maybe slightly better consumer options. This system actually is suppressing the political representation and the political and economic fairness all over the world, including in developed countries. Shall we move to what we do about it? So is that the Bitcoin answer? I don't know. There's just so much more to go, but you're right. We could. I mean, everyone should read the article possibly with a stiff drink, because no there is genocide in here. Yeah. There is the IMF giving loans to dictators who then use the loans to buy weapons from the United States and then gun down whole villages, murder whole communities. I mean, it is dark. Yeah, and I got to say, like, it seems like the data is indisputable. It's all there, lots of data. And to me, it really speaks to an intrinsic system that is just locked in there that has been wreaking havoc on the world. And, you know, lucky us, it's just been the way of life for the last 40 years. That means a lot of people have just born and been raised in an environment where this has always been the case. And even people that are older than 40, 40 years of their life is enough to make anything feel like normal. Like if 10 years of money printing can make a, a bull market seem normal, imagine what 40 years of this stuff has done. And it's built into how we have, you know, how our supply chain works now. It's built in all these uh, revenue structures of all these companies. It, to me, feels like it is one of the maps to how the world actually works. That's what this article is. And what I discovered is there's a lot of things along that path that I'm very uncomfortable and a little grossed out by. And so I don't really know. It's to me, it's like there's so much we could touch on, including how they're manipulating the energy narrative now. But I think ultimately there is a Bitcoin perspective here. And that's probably the highlight, the good news of this entire thing. What Gladstein finds is that Bitcoin adoption is basically one-to-one correlated with how many IMS structural adjustment loan programs a country has. Another way to parse that is that the IMF needs developing countries to have bad currencies that do not preserve value because that cheapens the labor of the people who live there and makes their resources cheap for the developed world to exploit. Another way of saying that is if you've been shafted by the IMF, Bitcoin helps you right now. And so the ability to opt out of a financial system dominated by players like the IMF, and and by the way, the IMF is a big player in the legacy financial system, because when the IMF gives a structural adjustment loan to a country, private lenders on Wall Street and out of Europe generally give four times as many loans on the back of the IMF loan, because the IMF loan is a signal that the IMF is going to make sure this country pays back its loans. And so then other Western financial elites pile in on that country. And so this creates essentially a weaponized capital flows, because as long as you toe the line and act like a good neo-colonial financial colony, everything's fine. No one finances a coup against your government. 
you keep on making your debt payments, but the moment things start to look shaky, like you have a populist democratic movement that doesn't like the way that corporations are treating people or they're hungry and they want more food or whatever, then all of this money flows out of your country. You have a financial crisis, which creates political crises, and then the IMF comes in again and says, goodness, if only there was a strong man dictator who could tame the populist movement and accept this massive IMF structural adjustment loan so that we can continue to do business. And human incentives are such that someone will step up and say, I am willing to screw over the people of my country so that I can steal 30% of that IMF structural adjustment loan inflict more misery on everybody. But hey, at least things will be stable. And I think, you know, you said something in there that's kind of tricky. You said, you know, if you're getting screwed over by the IMF today, Bitcoin can help you. But people are so removed from that screwing that they have no idea that perhaps the reason things are systemically like they are in their country is because their country is in debt to the IMF. You know, I think people wrap their head around how credit card debt or automobile debt or even a house loan or, you know, like a college, a college loan can really kind of limit your options and your flexibility. And as an individual, I think people grok that and they take on a certain amount of risk to what they're comfortable with, right? But that's what's happening at a nation state level. But the thing that's so brilliant about the Bitcoin solution here is that you can still leverage all of the personal savings outside of that system that's completely wrecked. And it's and by the way, we're 40 years into this and the debt is getting ridiculous, right? So it's not like we're at the beginning of this 40-year trend. And now Bitcoin's available today, and that's understandable at an individual level. So maybe you can't really map out how the IMF, Western governments, and Coca-Cola are screwing your country and making your day-to-day life less than it could be. Maybe that's a little hard to map out right now, but you can figure out that Bitcoin is savings outside the system. And I, I think when people talk about intrinsic value of Bitcoin, you don't even begin to scratch the surface until you talk about how valuable a stable savings technology that is evenly and fairly distributed around the world is outside a system. And yeah, maybe it's USD to SAP price is volatile, but Bitcoin itself is a rock. It's been up for 13 years straight and it's in a great place. And that gives it that kind of outside the system savings technology. That is a feature and that's massive. And so when people talk about the intrinsic value of Bitcoin, they have to understand how important that option is for some of these countries and will be for people in the West too. Right. Because this whole system of neo-colonial resource extraction, it depends on using a weaponized financial system that controls how people in the developing world access money. With Bitcoin, you get to do an end run around an unfair financial system that is designed to extract your labor and underpay you for it. And you are now on a new system with fixed rules. And that's why the IMF is terrified of Bitcoin. The IMF really went full aggro against El Salvador when El Salvador announced their Bitcoin bond, which appears to be happening, which is a way of raising money for a developing country that does not involve any of the traditional gatekeepers for sovereign debt issuance. It's a digital token on the liquid sidechain, which is built on top of Bitcoin. And so this is incredibly subversive and a real affront to IMF financial dominance of developing countries. Let's not forget that the IMF gave a multi-million dollar loan to a dictatorship in El Salvador that in 1982 massacred an entire village. It's awful. Sorry, getting lost there. 
You know, Satoshi Nakamoto wrote, and Alex has this quote in his piece, quote, the root problem with conventional currency is all the trust that's required to make it work. The central bank must be trusted not to debase the currency, but the history of fiat currencies is full of breaches of that trust. And the IMF and World Bank cannot exist on a Bitcoin standard. The way that they can always keep rolling over these loans to prevent default, this is only possible in a fiat world where you never settle to an underlying currency. It's it's just paper dollars, paper euros inside a banking system. There's no way to ever really withdraw. You're just trapped in this endless cycle of debt paying for more debt. And it only works because there's a lender of last resort, the Federal Reserve, who can, in a pinch, capitalize through typing numbers into a computer and creating money out of thin air, institutions like the IMF or Wall Street banks that eventually will take losses on these loans. This is not capitalism, as Alan Farrington says, because the IMF, the World Bank, and the Wall Street banks that pile in on these structural adjustment loan programs, they have no risk of loss. They will be bailed out. They are not They don't have skin in the game because they're part of a system that always bails them out, always protects their capital, and that gives them an unfair advantage that is just screwing up the entire world. This is not capitalism. It's it's neo-colonialism. It's something much darker. And the people of those countries pay for it. They pay for it with their quality of life being low, and they pay for it with their environment being destroyed. They pay for it in ways that are going to intrinsically alter those cultures for generations. And now, now that bill is coming due in the West as well. We're beginning to see it here too. If you look around, you can see we're starting to look a little bit more like one of those third worlds. Um, And I feel like we're going to feel this pinch as well. It's just going to be last. And as long as the dollar goes high, as long as this system remains in place, uh, we've got them right where we want them. And as long as the money printer can be turned on, uh, there is something exceptional about the U.S. You know, everybody talks about U.S. exceptionalism. It's this tidy little arrangement right here where they're also the world reserve currency. And the world reserve currency is the biggest part of the SDR basket. And it's a pretty convenient little situation we have going for ourselves. And I could see why some nations might want to uh, change that arrangement one day. Right. And, and I think that you're touching on something that kind of makes this IMF story hard to hear, especially for Americans, because there is this self-aggrandizing story of American exceptionalism. We're rich due to our own efforts, our ingenuity, our hard work, etc. And that story is somewhat a lie in that there are a lot of positive aspects to the United States, great institutions, a pretty okay rule of law in certain situations. Great, great piece of land, oceans on both sides of us. Amazing geography, amazing natural resources. But Americans also consume way above their weight in terms of global resources. And that's a real head scratcher. How does a country with less than 1% of global population consume around 30% of the world's energy. What's going on there? What's, you know, how, do, how does that work? And the answer is, part of it is the extractive nature of having the global reserve currency. And part of it is unfair political structures like the IMF and the World Bank that basically exploit countries without political representation for their resources and direct them to the prosperous developed world. So I think that confronting this can can seem a little difficult for people because it's not like we're all rich in the United States. I mean, one thing that's shocking about the United States, which we've touched on before, remember that poll about how many Americans have never been on an airplane? I think about that. Yeah. The, the United States is a, is a bizarre country. 
because there are so many rich people, but the vast majority of Americans are so poor. Maybe in dollar terms, if they took their thirty or forty thousand dollars a year and they moved to Nigeria, they'd be super rich. But they can't get that forty thousand dollars a year in Nigeria, so they're just super poor here and living very tenuous, stressful, scary lives. And then you go to that person and you say, "Hey." your life is being subsidized by this unfair system. There's very little incentive to understand that because it kind of sounds like we're saying that people need to give something up to fix this injustice. And that is not what we're saying. That's not what Alex Gladstein is saying. Because this system of resource extraction, neocolonialism, it also serves to reduce wages in the developed world. It serves to politically suppress the vast majority of populations around the world. This is a system of elites. And if you are not an elite, it is in your interest for this system to die. And it can do so peacefully through the Bitcoin revolution, through opting out of these unfair financial structures that are designed to extract both economic and political resources from us and to centralize them into a ruling elite They're doing well for themselves, but not for the rest of us. And they're going to be just fine. You know, this is one of those situations where the meme is kind of true. Fix the money, fix the world. There is something about that here. Now, of course, you're still going to have dictators. You're still going to have corruption. It doesn't really matter. That doesn't get solved. But what I love about Bitcoin is it can be adopted at the retail level first, at the consumer level, at the user level. It can be adopted kind of like the iPhone, right? The iPhone and Apple penetrated into corporate IT because users just started adopting them on their own without permission. And in fact, I I worked in IT in a period of time where it was very, very, very rare for a shop to have any Apple gear on the network. And if they did, it was usually like the media department or the or the marketing department or the video department, and they'd have their own network and they'd have their own authentication system. And that wall, which was a firewall, eventually was eroded and broke down because the users just opted to buy iPhones and they wanted MacBooks. And the Bitcoin trajectory is a similar technology adoption. The users will just want Bitcoin. People that are at home are going to want Bitcoin. And it doesn't have to even be adopted by um, a nation before it's useful for just people to opt out of these systems. And that makes it valuable. And then I think inevitably, like the corporations came around to the idea of adopting iPhones and came up with ways to incorporate them into their security schemes and their auditing schemes and all that kind of stuff. Bitcoin will see a similar trajectory by nation states. And it'll be inevitably better for everyone. The established, um, you know, media complexes and 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 financial complexes are going to be resistant to it. But I imagine it happens at such a dispersed, slow rate initially that it kind of just catches them off guard. There's not much that can be done and it doesn't even necessarily eliminate them. It just gives them less power and influence and they'll still have their little world. Sort of like the mainstream media today, still watched by millions of people, still has some influence, but has nowhere the near the kind of influence that overall they used to due to the adoption of independent media and podcasts and YouTube and things like that. For better or for worse, it's a little chaotic sometimes, but those kinds of trends play out in different kinds of uh, technology adoption curves. You just change the name of things. And that's why I'm overall, I, I, part of me feels like I either wish I could have grown up in a period of time where I could have optimally benefited from this structure, or I wish I could be just 20 years down the road and past all of this, because I feel like those of us that are, you know, of adult age right now, we're kind of going to get the worst of this 40 to 60 year regime that's been in place because it's kind of bu- coming to a bumpy end and it's not just going to happen overnight. It's going to take a while. And so for that, I'm, I'm kind of, 
I'm a little sad by it because I realize it's going to be a while before all of this is fixed and then it's going to be even longer before the damage is rolled back. But could you imagine what, how dark this story would be if there wasn't the light at the end of the tunnel that is Bitcoin that shows us a way out that is just people can opt into on their own. They don't have to get government permission like that is the light at the end of this tunnel. Absolutely. The IMF essentially has a guarantee on global sovereign debt, both in the developing world. And I think this also impacts developed countries' sovereign debt. And the sovereign debt bubble today is the big bubble. This is the the financial drug that our entire world is addicted to that drives inequality, that prevents true political and social reform that is standing in the way to a fairer and more efficient and equal world. And it needs to pop. This debt bubble needs to pop. It needs to unwind. And it is going to be a mess. And if we can avoid a world war in the process, that would be great. So again, this is kind of why it's hard to look at these problems and hard to understand them. Because the implication is slightly terrifying that we're going to have to live through so much upset, so much political, financial, social upset. But here's the thing. We've already been living through it. This is a problem that can't be papered over anymore. And at least, as Chris says, we have Bitcoin. So we can insulate ourselves from some of the financial implications. And to quote our our boy Barack again, one strategy is to embrace this chaos, to, to, to understand that we can't have what the baby boomers had. We can't have that assurance that things will always be this way and it's morally right and whatever. That world created the most selfish and entitled generation in history. They kind of suck. We will do better. I think we should embrace this change. I think it's going to be okay in the end. And I mean, did we really all want three cars and two swimming pools? No. Maybe we'll be happy with with one car and, you know, going to the public swimming pool. I don't know. I, th- I think it, I think it could be OK is what I'm getting at. And I think it's also just an opportunity to embrace new things. I- I've also used this last couple of years as an opportunity to invest in a garden. And my wife has become an incredible gardener and I've become an adequate helper. You know, and there's other areas, too. Where I'm like, yeah, this is this is some dark stuff, but I can actually turn this around and turn this into a learning opportunity or turn this into a situation to make myself even more sovereign. Because one of the philosophies of Bitcoin that's kind of rubbing off in other areas of my life is a self of complete sovereignty. I've really kind of doubled down on self-hosting my data and syncing my stuff locally and not to the cloud. You know, I've recently really gotten more sovereign about my location information and the information that companies collect about me and gardening. And, um, you know, like next week my cow arrives, right? I got the freezer last night. It got delivered and it's set up in the garage at the studio and we're going to load it up with a cow. And that's just another little step that we're taking. And in an overall, They've all led to a net improvement in my quality of life, regardless of any of this stuff going on in the macro. My quality of life has got better. That garden was one of the best things we did last year. It sounds like adaptation is the key. Adaptation and stack sats. Stack those sats. Yeah. <laughs> Adapt and stack. Adapt and stack. That, that might be our... Um, yeah, that might be could our... be our slogan, couldn't it? Okay. Just keep on adapting and stacking. For a slightly lighter aside, that's a pretty heavy, heavy uh, data drop. Janine is back with This Month in Bitcoin Privacy. It's the best privacy newsletter you'll ever read on GitHub. And it is dense. I mean, there are so many references there that I'm going to be reading this for weeks to come and be probably bringing up articles for the show from it. But I just wanted to point to a fun anniversary. This October 8th, 
is the anniversary of my Bitcoin privacy. Janine started the newsletter seven years ago. And or did she start the newsletter seven years ago? Or she got into Bitcoin privacy seven years ago? Well, what happened was she went to a meetup. She'd known about Bitcoin for two years, but then she went to a meetup that happened to feature a discussion around a paper about coin mixing called Coin Party, Secure Multi-Party Mixing of Bitcoins. And I think that this was a proposed method to do Bitcoin privacy. I don't think it actually worked out, but this got her interested. And this led to this incredible newsletter. Janine was at the Oslo Freedom Forum, uh, I think last year. So I mean, what a what a cool journey she's taken embracing privacy, journalism, and Bitcoin. And it all started with a local Bitcoin meetup. So if yep. you have yep. the option to go to one, I think we'll be trying to restart the Seattle, some Northwest Bitcoin meetups in the near future. And it just, uh, you know, that's a great way to kind of meet more Bitcoiners and learn about what's happening. This is a point we could hit maybe even a little more often. Uh, it's really hard to appreciate because I was this person. I'm, I'm kind of antisocial, a little introverted when I'm not doing a show. And uh, so I don't inherently seek out social events. In fact, I kind of actively avoid them. <laughs> and so for me, I'm just not I'm just not instinctively drawn to these kinds of things. But boy, can I tell you, they are worth it. Having now done them for years. They're just remarkable. And Janine, she makes a great contribution to the space. We'll have a link in the show notes to her newsletter if you want to see what we're talking about. And it's incredible that this contribution was inspired by a Bitcoin meetup. And I just want to underscore that point to remind everyone that if you do get the opportunity, or maybe if dad and I had like a a Bitcoin barbecue at the studio in the spring or summer, and you could make it, I just want to encourage you because it'll energize you in a way that I think will surprise you if you haven't attended one before. This episode of the Bitcoin Dad Pod is brought to you by Jupiter Broadcasting, Chris's international elite Linux-focused podcasting network. (laughs) He's laughing in his... My empire! 44th floor, wall-to-wall ceiling executive suite, right? Sorry, wall-to-wall window, ceiling-to-wall window. How do you say that? We got a great deal where we could just spend a few more thousand a month, so we moved over to the Space Needle. So now we're actually in a rotating studio at the top of the Space Needle. Oh, that's excellent. I also like the Tesla coil behind you. That's very atmospheric. Yeah, yeah. I actually had that flown in, too. Boy, was that something getting up here. We had to rip the top of the uh, Space Needle off. You know what? It's worth it. Totally worth it. And Jupiter Broadcasting brings you shows such as Linux Unplugged, Self-Hosted, and recently a new show called Office Hours, which of course is the worst name in podcasting. You can find that at officehours.hair, but it's excellent content that makes up for its incredibly hard-to-find name. I heard that today's episode features Chris and Brent teaching ChatGPT how to write a presidential stump speech about why this machine learning model should be president in the United States. Check it out at officehours.hair, selfhosted.show, or search for Jupiter Broadcasting. See what comes up. You know, a lot of old stuff, probably, because we've been around for 15 years, so there's a lot of old stuff, but good stuff. Too. You know, we just go to jupiterbroadcasting.com. We got all the feeds there. You put in your podcatcher of choice, which is no doubtedly, I'm sure, a podcasting 2.0 app, of course. Remember, you can get in touch with the show, Bitcoin Dad Pod at protonmail.com, at Bitcoin Dad Pod on Twitter, or join our Matrix channel. Use a Matrix client-like element details in the show notes. Always a good conversation over there. We got some boost this week. People showed up with some support for the show, which is great to see after a light week. And Bitcoin Lizard was our baller this week with 50,000 sats. 
He writes, Chris mentioned that there are 72 Bitcoin currently locked up in Lightning channels. Actually, the public Lightning capacity is closer to 5,072 Bitcoin. The number doesn't include the private channel capacity, so we don't really know the full number. You know what I realized, too? It went off like a bell. That 72 number I was thinking of was a different metric for the Lightning network, which I have now, because it's about a week later, completely forgot about. But 5,072 Bitcoin that we can publicly see on the Lightning network. That is some serious funnel capacity. Thank you so much for the boost. Our next boost comes from Crypto Kyle, who sent in 22,223 sats. So that's like a row of ducks and a swan, maybe? Uh, Yeah, maybe. Or like a duck-swan hybrid. Sat support incoming. Great episode and keep it up. Thank you so much, Crypto Kyle. Thanks, Crypto Kyle. Awesome app boosted in with 6969 sets. <laughs> Zing. The biggest thing that props up Apple is the terrible system of intellectual property. Yeah, they patent everything, don't they? I know. And Awesome Matt is an anarcho-capitalist, I believe. I think that's what he told me. And so he is completely against intellectual property. He thinks that basically a kind of uh, open source free-for-all is a better state for technology. What about Awesome Matt, a 10-year window? So like the company can have a 10-year exclusive on the tech to like build their empire, and then it has to open up. I think that was the original idea. It's just that that's been sort of prolonged indefinitely via corporate lobbying. So. Mm-hmm. That might be his counter to your proposal. I don't know. I don't know. What if we went back to that? Would that be acceptable? Because that kind of seems reasonable to me. Yeah, I, I like that idea. But if, I honestly uh, have not thought about it a lot. If it could be implemented. Van Room sends us 5,789 sats. Great show as always. What do you guys think about the future bit Apollo node and miner? Looks cool, but a little pricey. And there's a link in the show notes. I mean, pricey, I think, depends on your point of view. My first thought when I saw $899 was this is one of the cheapest Bitcoin miners I've ever seen. Now, of course, the devil is in the details. They say they have 44 ASIC cores. So I guess the idea is this is like an x86 PC that also has an ASIC miner built in and cooling built in. And so it comes with uh, kind of a node in the box type software. So you can run a Bitcoin node and have access to some of those tools. It comes with a six core CPU, a terabyte of NVMe storage, and they say it's a quiet fan and the overall box, which indicates probably how much Bitcoin it can actually mine. The overall box, they say, only uses 200 watts of power. Now, that means you're not going to produce a lot of Bitcoin. Yeah. So I think that this is kind of a toy Bitcoin miner for, for sure. a hobbyist. Yeah, right. It, it's a beautiful looking piece of hardware and it, they can do cool things like string units together so you can buy a couple of them and have them all running together. But it runs at 25 decibels. Is that loud? Chris? No, 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 that's actually pretty reasonable. Okay. Could you sit next to that? Like if it were on your desk? I mean, it would register, but a a quiet room is generally around 25 decibels. That's sort of the base floor for a quiet room. So this is not going to be competitive compared to ant miners and what's miners that are just screeching and super loud. At the same time, you know, it's kind of like, looks like a fun, a fun piece of hardware. The pictures of it are beautiful. It looks like a really nice little case and stuff. I wonder, Chris, can you tell what the actual board is based on the IO slots on the back? I wonder if you can recognize if that's like an O-Droid or something that they've wired up. That's a great idea. I was actually kind of assuming it was an Intel-based system, but that's a good point. I wonder if I can. Hmm. 
No, I don't recognize it on the back. It looks like it is an external. It has an external power brick which connects over DC. So you could run it off DC, like in my situation. I'm I kind of like these ideas. I don't like why not mine a little bit of Bitcoin. I'm already going to run a node, and this also comes with like some of the hosting software. So you can run a BTC Pay server, get on the Lightning Network. Like if you're already going to do that, I bet you my node upstairs that's running right now is probably using around 180 watts of power just with no mining going on. Um, and then there's another category kind of adjacent to this that I also really like the idea of. I'm not buying any of these, but I love the idea of electric heaters that are heating with ASICs. Heatbit is one of these at heatbit.com and bitcoinminingheater.com is another one. And they're really slick, nice looking pieces of hardware that you would not mind having in your home. And they generate heat by mining Bitcoin. Now, in my home, when I'm stationary, I generate the bulk of my heat with electric oil heaters. They sit there and they heat the oil and they radiate heat um, or a forced air heater. But that's just heating an electric coil and blowing air across it. And I'm literally just wasting that electricity by just making things hot and then warming the room with it. And I've always thought, it's always bugging me, thought, you know, I could be using that same amount of electricity producing heat with something that's computing. I don't even know. Maybe it's doing folding at home. I don't care. It just, it seems like such an enormous waste. And if we can get these ASICs down to a price where you can embed them into machines like this, and you know, maybe you participate in a pool or maybe you buy a few of them across a year and you get a little bit of, you know, it helps you stack some KYC sats. KYC free. Oh yes. Right. It kind of seems like a great option to me. I mean, I don't I wouldn't plan to like, you know, get, I wouldn't plan on becoming a whole coiner with it, but you know, why not stack some sats? It's a cool idea. I'd love to see some really nerdy research on the cost benefit analysis and the efficiency of these mining heating units. I also wouldn't be opposed to a ASIC popcorn maker because I was making some popcorn for my daughter yesterday and I happened to touch the power cord that was going into the oh. wall and it was heating up and I was like, Jesus, these popcorn makers, this is pulling a lot of yeah. power out of the socket. Is this yeah. even safe? Yeah, I wonder if this isn't going to become more of a thing. And what a great way to, to uh, truly distribute the hash rate. That's the other thing I kind of like about it is one or two of these machines is nothing. It's a, it's not even a drop in the ocean, but you know, 15,000, 20, 30,000 of these out there of different kinds from different makers with different kinds of capacity. Now you're starting to talk about some serious distribution. I, I'll put, I'll put some links in the notes if you want to, if you want to check them out. Cause I think, uh, I'd love to hear from somebody out there that tries this. I used to heat my, some of my OG Bitcoin mining when you could do it on GPUs is I had a studio out in my third bay of a large garage. And in this time of year, like right now, you would get very, very cold out there. And so I had three systems out there mining Bitcoin on GPUs. And that's how I warmed my studio space. So you've done this before. Yeah, it was just with computers, so there's a lot of overhead. Uh, Rustic Castaversa boosts in with a thousand sats and wants to know if there's some dirty Linux Academy at Cloud Guru Laundry that needs to be aired and wants to know if there's an NDA. You know, um, a gentleman doesn't kiss and tell, Castaversa. I was going to say, I think you're not a kiss and teller. No, but I use that experience and my, my consulting experience and my contracting experience over the years to inform my commentary. And I, one of the things I'm really grateful of the two and a half years, three years at Linux Academy and a cloud guru is I really got a in-depth lesson on how these VC funded tech SaaS platforms work. And that wasn't how these tech companies were organized or worked a decade ago when I was in tech. So I, I now have experience from like pre 2008 crazy. And now I have experience with peak 2008 VC crazy. And I find that experience to be 
it, so valuable that I'll use it for the rest of my life. Adopting Bitcoin sent us 4,200 sats. Thank you for participating and contributing to Adopting Bitcoin, Dad. Oh, thanks so much for the boost. Stoked to hear that you'll come again and bring Chris with you in 23. P.S. Videos from the conference are available on youtube.com slash at Adopting Bitcoin. Cheers. Oh, I've great. watched a couple. I've been meaning okay. to... Uh, watch them and link to them in the show because there's so much good stuff in there but also shout out to adopting bitcoin make sure you schedule chris and i for lots of panels and things we'll work like slaves again this year it'll be great and my experience tells me we should also plan on doing a live show there because the worst thing is is doing all this work and not coming away with a show because then you just have to work again so you know i'll work my uh my tush off if we can do a live show there oh right? yeah that would be super fun. Mm -hmm. Baffo boosts in with 9,999 sats. Baffo say good episode and send good boost. Baffo do always send good boost. We like ye Baffo. <laughs> we like Baffo's boost. Our last boost comes from user 302, 1400 sats with the simple message of great show. Thanks so much for the compliment. Thank you. And we got some we got some boosts out there from folks that uh, didn't attach a message. Thank you very much. We got some boosts out there from folks that were kind of under the thousand sat line and we just wanted to keep it tight. But thank you very much. We appreciate everybody. And thank you, everybody out there who clips the show and shares it on platforms like Fountain FM as well. Remember, you can always support the show with a value for value transfer using a podcasting 2.0 app such as Fountain.fm on Android, Podverse, which is cross-platform, and Castomatic on Apple. This has been the Bitcoin Dad Pod, recorded on Friday, December 9th, 2022. I've been your Bitcoin Dad, and I'm here with... Uh, me, uh, Chris. As always, thanks, everybody. Thanks for joining us. See you next time. <laughs>